0: You're listening to Plenary Session. On today's episode of Plenary Session, I have a few things for you. First, I'm going to talk to you about a recent paper that appeared in the JCO entitled Comparison of Population-Based Observational Studies with Randomized Trials in Oncology. It should be called Concordance of Observational Studies with Randomized Trials on the Same Clinical Questions in Cancer Medicine. Can observational trials replace RCTs, because that's really what it's all about, and I'm going to give you at least eight points about this paper, Um, mostly positive, uh, but a couple of little quibbles with it. Next, I'm going to talk very briefly about some articles that I won't even name, but these are articles that lament physicians use of Twitter. They also lament the open access model for journals. I'm going to try to point out why it's not a good idea to fight progress. Next, I have an interview with OHSU's own Katherine Shabel. Dr. Shabel is an assistant professor of medicine at OHSU in the Division of Orthopedics and Rehabilitation. She is a practicing joint replacement surgical expert and a beloved physician. She's going to take us through some of the principles of orthopedic practice, and you won't want to miss this discussion, so stay tuned. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, do us a favor and recommend it to a friend. Plenary Session wants to grow its audience and the best way to do so is to get a personal recommendation from someone you know or trust. So recommend it to someone and have them check out an episode. Also, consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon Patreon.com allows you to support artists or podcasts that you appreciate. And if you like this podcast, that's a great way to show your support. Finally, if you haven't yet gone onto the iTunes store and written us a review, we greatly appreciate it. Tell us what you think about this podcast and give us five stars if we've earned it. Okay, up first, comparison of population-based observational studies with randomized trials in oncology. This is by Dr. Sony and colleagues. What do you need to know? Well, I guess I would say, as a bit of background, it is clearly the case that people are increasingly interested in whether or not one can use observational studies, often retrospective, large administrative data set studies, to conclude whether or not certain treatments are better than other treatments, whether or not certain treatments are better than nothing at all. If you were able to use observational studies in this manner, One subset of questions you might ask is whether or not a novel anti-cancer drug could be used for an off-label purpose in the real world, and could it be shown in an observational study that it improves outcomes, and if so, can you give that drug regulatory approval? Now, of course, the obvious limitation of this idea is it would encourage rampant off-label use of anti-cancer drugs across oncology in the hope that some of these drugs will be investigated in some observational studies and be shown to confer a benefit, thus leading to a supplemental marketing authorization. But this is a very foolish way to explore whether or not drugs work for other purposes. It is highly inefficient. In other words, one of the values and virtues of a clinical trial is you efficiently try to answer a clinical question. Does this drug have response rate X or Y or Z in a certain cancer setting? It's done with as few participants as possible, so you don't endanger many people with an experimental, toxic, anti-cancer agent trying to answer this question more than you otherwise need to. And so when you encourage rampant off-label use of therapy and you dangle the carrot that some of these will lead to supplemental marketing authorizations, you have created a costly, inefficient way to test whether or not drugs work for other purposes. But People don't want to focus on that. They want to focus on the golden lining, which is can you imagine the bonanza of drug approvals we would have with such studies. And in fact, Sony and colleagues do suggest that it would lead to said bonanza. So what do these authors do? I guess I would say. What they're trying to do here is they're looking for particular types of retrospective observational studies. These are studies using SEER, SEER SEER-Medicare data set, and the National Cancer Database. This is one class of data sets, large administrative data sets, that are used to draw causal conclusions about the effectiveness of certain treatments, be that radiation therapy, be that surgical therapy, be that one treatment versus another treatment of systemic therapy, or some systemic therapy versus nothing at all. These are the kinds of data sets that are used. They're not the only kinds of data sets that are used. Electronic health records are used, insurer databases are used, different other types of data sets are used to draw those kinds of conclusions so one should assume that there may be some differences between these other data sources and these data sources some of those differences have to do with the available covariates some of those differences will have to do with the types of questions being asked but it's fair to focus on these because these are a common class of questions okay so here are at least uh, eight or nine things that i thought about while i was reading this paper so first first one has to be a little bit of a quibble It's a bit of a quibble, I'm sorry about this guys, because this is a really wonderful paper, and and overall I give it my highest rating, which is five stars. I've just created right now for the first time the star rating, and I'm giving this the five stars. But there are a few little quibbles. One quibble, the introductory sentence, the first sentence. In the last decade, there have been significant strides in cancer treatment with the introduction of precision medicine, new targeted therapies, and immune-modulating agents, and technological advances in surgery, imaging, and radiotherapy. Okay, here's my my quibble about this. You know, and, and maybe I'm also guilty of this in a couple of my papers as well, but the quibble is... Why do we have to start a paper with a broad, pat ourselves on the back sentence that has absolutely nothing to do with the content of the paper? The paper could just open with, you know, coming right to the punchline, which is, a number of prior studies have investigated whether or not observational studies reach the same conclusions as randomized trials conducted on the same clinical question. Here they are. That's how I would start the paper, because that's really where the thread picks up. That's really where we start the question. We want to know, what's the agreement between these two things? Why do we want to know that? Well, we tend to think, and for good reason, that randomized trials are telling you the true causal effect of an intervention. Why? Because you've randomized participants to an intervention or another intervention or an intervention in a control, and you... By doing so, have minimized confounding by indication that most of the covariates will be evenly distributed, and any imbalances in certain covariates may be offset by imbalances in other covariates, and even unmeasured covariates. The differences between unmeasured confounding factors will be minimized, and it could go in either direction, and it can be offset by perhaps other unmeasured confounding variables so that's the beauty of randomization it's really separating out the therapeutic or treatment effect from the noise of differences in patient population so we tend to believe that randomized trials give us more accurate causal conclusions observational studies of course There are lots of reasons why some people get some treatments versus other people. Uh, It has to do with the type of doctor prescribing the treatment, that particular person. It has to do with how a patient appears, their laboratory results, their socioeconomic status, their location, the hospital they're getting care at, and a host of other factors many of these may not be balanced. Many of these may not be minimized. Many of these may actually drive differences in outcome, and that may look as if a treatment has an effect when, in fact, it is merely the consequence of not adequately handling the confounding variables in the data set. Okay, so that's the problem with observational studies. And I kind of on this introductory sentence, but the reason is it's too broad and it doesn't start right where we need to start. And also, it feels a bit obligatory that in cancer medicine, we have to always start every paper by praising what a good job we're doing. In fact, you could probably find this in many, many classes. There have been dramatic improvements in five-year survival in a host of cancers. What the authors, of course, don't mention in that introductory sentence, that hypothetical sentence, is that five-year survival is... A very misleading measure of how well you're doing in terms of treatments it is also heavily affected by lead time bias or improvements in diagnostic moving up the diagnostic time you know so that's another kind of classic sentence Um, the other the other kind of classic sentence that people start off a paper with is um, the tumor we're looking at is the most common malignancy of epithelioid cells Located below the diaphragm among people between the ages of forty and fifty. So, of course, it's the most common with all these caveats which make it, you know, the most common, but perhaps overall, uh, without those caveats, the seventy eighth most common ailment uh, in cancer medicine. So that's another kind of common sentence. And I guess we should kind of move away from these cliches and and we should move towards sort of a, a better starting sentence, which has to do with, you know, what is the context to which you're dropping in um, in in this paper? Two, Um, a little bit about the history um, which again this is my second quibble I'm so sorry about this my second quibble for these authors which is their paragraph in the conclusion that says to our knowledge there have been only two smaller systematic comparisons of observational studies and RCTs reference one and two one and two of course is a very famous paper by Benson and Concato which were paired papers in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2000 which I'm going to talk about in a second but the reason this sentence rubs me the wrong way, is it's basically admitting that they don't have much knowledge of this field. Because if you follow this field, you will know there are much more, much, 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 much more than two smaller systematic comparisons. And in fact, an easy way to find that and to prove it to yourself is just to chase the citation trees of those two papers. Look to see how many times they've been cited and read some of the citing papers, and you will find at least 20, to my knowledge, papers. That's to my knowledge, and I do follow this field. Um, and the way I would put it is, to my knowledge, and having done that once a few years ago, I would say there's at least 20, uh, 20 studies that are relevant uh, in this space. Perhaps not all are concordant studies, but many, many are. And I'm going to take you a little bit through the history. Um, the history is, of course, that this has been a long standing and uh, a topic of long standing interest, going all the way back to some of the early days of evidence based medicine before we even called it evidence based medicine. So, even in the 70s and 80s, um, through works by Sachs and Tom Chalmers and other people, looking at concordance between different types of study design, comparing it almost invariably against randomized trials, which were always and will likely always be thought of as sort of the most clean assessments of causality. And I think one of the seminal moments was, of course, those two papers that they cite was the two papers that appeared in the New England Journal in 2000. Those were really small, and those were really spun to really overestimate the concordance. Um, So those were done by, of course, the paper by Benson and Hartz, and then the the matching paper by John Concato, and also including Ralph Horwitz, who used to be... Um, chairman of medicine at at Stanford, um, prior to that at Yale. Um, And those those gentlemen were, um, I think, very interested in this topic. And what did those studies show? Those studies showed that in a very, very tiny fraction of comparisons of clinical questions on the same topic, that the concordance wasn't as bad as people might have thought. Um, And thus, they have been invariably cited to kind of tout the benefits of observational studies. Well, a little bit of what these authors may not know about the history is that a few years later in JAMA, John Yonides led the largest to date at that time, which I think was about 2005, 2006, um, study of concordance. And he found, of course, much poorer concordance because he searched more broadly. There have been a number of studies that have looked at concordance, both for measures of efficacy, as well as measures of harm. Um, when it comes to measures of harm, there appears to be stronger concordance, i.e. that observational studies are, are perhaps more accurately documenting what are harm signals that come there. Perhaps observational studies have one advantage when it comes to harms rather than benefits, and that is trials are, of course, powered routinely to detect meaningful benefits. They're not powered or designed to detect rare harms. They wouldn't be. That doesn't make any sense at all. But observational studies do, of course, have the virtue of being able to be powered and designed and suited to detect rare adverse events. And one such example would be atypical subtrochanteric femur fractures from bisphosphonate use, which is a signal that came out more in observational studies, which have, of course, much more power than even all of the randomized trials on that topic put together. That was one such place where people think that that matters. Um, And there have been a number of studies of concordance, and, and the harms that do shake out in RCTs tend to shake out in observational studies. The other piece of history that I would kind of quote is that people have investigated whether or not novel analytical approaches actually improve the concordance. Um, one example outside of medicine is, of course, that Facebook experiment that was do- talked about a few years ago, which perhaps another podcast we'll delve into, which looked at different ways of advertising. Um, the other good example is a paper by David Kent and colleagues that appeared as a viewpoint or commentary in JAMA, and that looked at whether propensity score matching had greater concordance than sort of the old-fashioned RCTs. And what that showed was actually, I would say, my takeaway from that And that figure is that there was remarkable discordance even in propensity score matched analyses when compared against RCTs, which kind of took some of the wind out of the sails of propensity score matching. Okay, so I would say that's a bit of the history in terms of the empirical studies that have been done on the topic. Um, There's also a whole bunch of commentaries on this topic, so I would have kind of broadened this history a little bit. And I will put this paper square in the middle of that dialogue. Okay. Now to go to the major findings. So of course the authors were able to pair 121 randomized trials against observational studies on the same clinical question and their overall takeaway message is when it comes to the qualitative conclusion though when you walk away from this paper do you think this works or do you think it doesn't work that qualitative conclusion that the agreement between these two classes of studies was about forty percent which may sound good but of course when you flip two coins and coins only have a heads or a tails there's a good chance by chance alone you're gonna get two heads or you're gonna get two tails and in fact 40% is really agreement that is basically no better than chance alone. It's no better than chance agreement, and thus the kappa coefficient is a very useful way to look at that. And so what they're basically saying is that the qualitative takeaway message from these studies is no better than chance agreement, which is Let me be very clear about it. Lousy, which is lousy, which means that it's absolutely untrustworthy and that you cannot hang your your hat on it. And that if you wanted to use it for regulatory approval, you would do so only at your great peril. Only if you were willing to shift all of the uncertainty from the pre-market space and controlled clinical trials with reporting criteria and futility rules to the post-market space with massive health care spending outlays and massive toxicity that is being documented by no one with no stopping rules so if you would want to do such a thing then this would be a good idea and in fact one may wonder what was actually intended by people who wrote the cures bill the congress people who wrote, of course and i mean the real people who wrote the cures bill no the the lobbyists who wrote the cures bill. I mean, of course, um, you know whoever actually wrote the cures bill. You might wonder what their intention was in writing it. Okay, four e table seven of the paper. E table seven of the paper is just a key, just a key table that shows you that observational studies tend to find benefits that randomized studies did not. So I'll just I'll just look through this. Out of many many studies. When observational studies looked at the addition of surgery, 80% found that surgery was better. When observational studies looked at the addition of radiation, 56% found it was associated with better survival. When they looked at systemic therapies, 61% found that it was associated with better survival. In other words, they're hitting the ball out of the park with observational studies. And that should actually give you some pause because... We are, unfortunately, and not so good in biomedicine. But when you look at randomized controlled trials, only 25% found that the addition of surgery led to better survival, only 25% of radiation studies, only, 25, only 47% of systemic therapy studies. Okay, the authors really drive home this point. A majority, 68%, of published observational comparisons reported a statistically significant survival difference between compared treatments. However, only 31% of the RCTs reported significant survival differences. Observational studies were significantly more likely to demonstrate longer survival with the addition of surgery than with radiotherapy, odds ratio 0.33, or systemic therapy 0.4. No such pattern was identified among RCTs. Of course, what the authors here are hinting at is that nowhere are the selection biases too Proscribe a therapy stronger than with surgery, where it literally requires a surgeon to look at someone and decide, is this person the kind of person I want to take to the operating room? And when a surgeon is deciding on that, there may be a strong bias towards picking people who look healthier. Okay. Um, The fifth point I wanted to make that the discordance these authors are noting, and they've also plotted the point estimate of the hazard ratio in a figure, and they plot a correlation coefficient that also shows very, very poor concordance, very, very poor correlation. And someone might say that this has to do with power, um, that the reason the observational studies are able to find all these miraculous benefits is that they're more adequately powered. But of course, The authors here are making a clever point to show that that is not really the case. It's not really a power issue, because the point estimate of the observational study often falls outside the 95% confidence interval of the RCT, suggesting that even if the RCT were tremendously powered uh, to find those differences, that that the observed treatment effects in observational studies are fundamentally incompatible with the observed treatment effects in the RCTs, and that is not a matter of the power. Six. Um, these authors find that the best predictor of agreement was a null observation result. In other words, the observational studies that you were most likely able to hang your hat on were the ones that found that the intervention, that the surgery, the radiation therapy, the novel treatment didn't work. Okay, And this probably has to do with the fact that biology is difficult and selection bias is common and so observational studies if anything generally err on the side of finding differences and benefits where none actually exist and so the most prudent observational study and the most faithful our observational study is the one that actually finds no difference because that's probably the reality of the world okay the seventh thing I thought about was I couldn't find it in this paper, and perhaps I just didn't read everything as close as I ought to, which was the temporality of it. What do I mean by that? You know, what you really want to know is the concordance of observational studies and subsequent RCTs. You're not as interested, I think, in the concordance of RCTs and observational studies when they come in that order. What do I mean? Once you know what well-done randomized control trials show, one can know what an observational study should show. In other words, when randomized trials have already been published on a topic documenting what treatment effects are plausible through their 95% confidence intervals, the authors of observational studies may implicitly, or perhaps explicitly, be biased towards falling within that range. Yeah, I can do an observational study, and yeah, I might reach a different qualitative walk-away message, but no, I don't want to stray too far from that 95% conference interval, and lest I be thought of as providing a too-good-to-be-true or erroneous result. And therefore, I might underplay... Analyses that do do that and overplay analyses that fall within what is expected or reasonable or thought to be plausible. See, what you really want are observational studies that don't have RCTs that the authors are willing to say, here's what I think the treatment effect is, and then let's see how time judges those claims. What is the modern relevance of this? I hear that Flatiron is working real hard on trying to develop methods that would allow us to supplant traditional randomized trials. And one of the ways in which they can validate that is to do some comparison against existing randomized studies. But what I would want them to do is to do that analysis for studies that have not yet enrolled patients. Once trials enroll patients, you start to get information about those trials. What do I mean? If a trial enrolled patients three years ago and it hasn't hasn't posted results yet, and the DSMB has presumably met several times, and the endpoint presumably occurs frequently, you can rest assured that it's pretty much going to be null. It's much more likely to be null than the average study, because they're waiting for the events to accrue, and enough events to differentially accrue that you can halt the trial, okay? And the longer they're waiting for that, the less optimistic you might be getting about a study. You see what I'm saying? So when they have these kinds of clues out there, it may implicitly or explicitly allow them to throw a guess out that may be closer to the actual guess, but that's not really what you want. Because if somebody wants to use this in lieu of the correct study, randomized trials, you would need to know that that would be a fair and reliable thing to do. And so therefore, you would need to know how it performs under the condition that you don't know the randomized trials. and you're not going to know any clues that will help you toss out a point estimate. So that's where I think it would be more interesting to kind of look at that class of things where the observational study preceded the randomized trial by many, many years. Finally, the eighth point, the authors actually did an internal analysis where they classify some observational RCT pairs as really well-matched versus other ones that may be not as closely matched, and what they find is that even when they were well-matched, the agreement was 40%, still pretty lousy, and so that, in other words, when they really are spot-on, same population, same question kinds of analyses, they still diverge to a very fair extent. Okay. So I want to say overall, this is a really wonderful paper. There's a lot in here to unpack. I haven't unpacked it all yet. I look forward to to sort of taking a deeper dive as I think about this topic. The one thing I would say is that, and I've seen this to some degree on Twitter, and I've seen some people push back appropriately, which is some people say, what about observational studies that do it the way I like to do it? Now, this is a really, I would say, annoying um, sort of objection Because do we live in a world where the only observational studies people hang their hats on are the ones done the way you like to do it? Because if we don't live in that world where we live in a world where people are happy to hang their hat on at least some observational studies, which is the world we live in, then this analysis is the right analysis because it's asking, in the world we live in, are these people who are willing to hang their hat on some analyses correct? Are they vindicated? And the answer is not at all. They are practicing, I think, cowboy medicine because they have a very poor, no better than chance, likelihood of being vindicated. Now, you might say, "What about me? What about me? I practice very. I, I only use the the most high quality observational studies in my practice." Well, I guess it's a little bit like the surgeon saying or cardiologist saying that you know, "Courage trial doesn't apply to me because I really know how to stent, or "But it doesn't apply to me because I know how to do it right." Um, okay, well, you know, you could try to prove that that that's the case. Um, And I guess I would say that that is the next step because one proposal for observational studies, and I think perhaps the philosophically strongest proposal is the proposal by Miguel Hernan and colleagues from Harvard, which say you need to do observational studies that really emulate trials, that have an inclusion phase, that really minimize guarantee time bias, really minimize confounding by indication, um, that really you need to do observational studies in a way with sort of an enrollment phase to mimic a randomized control trial to really remove immortal time from your analyses and some other kind of problems that face these studies. And I think that that is actually highly promising and worth investigating. And again, I think that the way you would benchmark those is to ask people using that methodology to call the next 50, forthcoming RCTs, predict the results during the early enrollment phase so you have no clues about which way the trial is going to go, and let's see what the concordance turns out to be. I think that's the right way to kind of validate this strategy, and that's the right way to validate, I think, Flatiron or any company that tries to sell you this service. That said, I think that this trial emulation strategy still doesn't solve one problem which, out there, which is efficiency. When you have novel surgeries, radiotherapies, proton beam, new drugs, you want to know where those work and where those don't work. And you want to minimize the number of people who get exposed to costly, toxic, unproven strategies. Um, You want to minimize the number of people who get exposed to that in answering the question. You also want to minimize the time it takes to answer that question. So you want to answer it as quickly as possible. And the way to do so is probably through trials. It's probably not through letting people practice willy-nilly for many years and then retrospectively going back. That is almost surely a suboptimal way to do it. It will probably mean many, many, many more people get prescribed that treatments; those costs are borne by those patients in society, um, that not all of the things that are being attempted are even being studied, not all of the data is being collected. Many, many more patients have to be exposed to things in order to answer questions that could have been answered with far fewer. You know, and the analogy I like to use, which is one I've talked about on this podcast, which is, are patients with advanced or metastatic solid tumors who have progressed on prior therapies benefited by the routine sequencing of their cancer tumor genome through commercial services such as the Foundation Medicine that look at 324 genes. Okay? So CMS has decided we're going to pay for this. They originally had a coverage with evidence development provision where the observational data of such patients would be reported to CMS that was better than nothing, but of course due to lobbying they stripped that coverage guidance of that provision and thus there is no such provision so they will never get that they will never get that data. If you implement their proposal, you, you know, as a back of the envelope estimate, are performing a $2,000 service, which is the CMS negotiated reimbursed rate to about half a million people per annum, um, which is roughly on the order of a billion dollars for a billion dollars, you could have answered this question and many, many other questions in a very short period of time. In fact, I have actually performed the power calculation for that particular clinical question and determined that just 2,000 people need to be randomized, 1,000 people getting the test, 1,000 people not getting the test, to answer the question of whether or not that is associated with that coverage guidance, that the actual policy that was implemented is associated with improved survival. It could be done in a fraction of the time it could be answered in a year and a half if cms used coverage with evidence development to mandate getting this as part of an rct which they did do with wingspan which actually answered that question in a short period of time so that would be the right way to do it now what's the overall takeaway here many many people will not be happy with the work by sony and colleagues for the simple reason that it delegitimizes an entire factory of projects. Many, many people are engaged in this kind of research. Many, many people have made careers or sought promotion based on these publications. And many, many people are going to be really unhappy to realize that what they're doing is no better than predicting another coin flip by flipping a coin. And that's really what the takeaway message of this is, which is that observational studies on clinical interventions in cancer medicine have nearly no value in predicting the actual effects as shown in RCTs. Some Somebody out there might be smart enough to figure out a way to get those observational studies to be more faithful. If I had to pick any one person to do that, it would be Miguel Hernan and colleagues. Somebody might be able to do it someday. But the way we're doing it right now We're not ready for this. And so when we move to and the juggernaut of lax drug approvals is moving that way to approving more and more drugs based on retrospective EMR data, which is what many, many people see as the holy grail, the predominant beneficiaries of such strategy will be the makers of drugs and devices who will likely benefit from the exaggerated treatment effects of observational studies and the people who will pay the price will be patients and will be payers and they unfortunately don't have the lobbying strength of the people who benefit and so thus the eternal quote that a small Interested minority can always defeat a large disinterested majority is likely true when it comes to this practice. So those are my thoughts on a really important, and to my knowledge, one of the largest studies that has been done on this concordance issue, which is not the third time this issue has been visited, uh, but rather part of a long and extended dialogue on this important clinical question that has spanned, At least 20 years, but going back at least 40 years um, on this topic. And I urge people to kind of go through this history. I went through it um, originally, I think when I was an intern at Northwestern University, when I started to get interested in this field, uh, I started to read some of the older papers and have kind of kept up with it. And I was very pleasantly surprised uh, to see that this newest edition, this new update is out there now in the JCO. So with that, Let's turn to our next issue. The New England Journal of Medicine has issued a new tweet. It says, the evidence to date does not confirm the hypothesis that the gold open access publication model will advance science and be an unprecedented public good. So this is a surprising time to insist that scientific content should be quote unquote free online as Europe's plan S aims to do. Well, here you go again, New England Journal of Medicine. First, they defend rampant financial conflict of interest. Next, they tackle the thorny issue of data sharing. When patients consent to clinical trials, they consent that their personal information is used for the sake of others who may someday have the condition that they themselves have and be used to further the scientific good. And what they get from that is a current system where many, many people hoard data for years, keeping it in file cabinets or in file folders where no one ever accesses it. And thus, many clinical questions are unanswered while many other capable minds are left without data. And then eventually, when those researchers retire, they usually bury that data with them and it is lost forever to the sea of time, thus not honoring patients' implicit consent with participating in clinical trials. And the modest very, 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 very modest effort to improve upon the current failure. Uh, The ICMJ proposal to make available data for the primary figures and tables of the paper was struck down after heavy lobbying from trialists who are, for the very first time in their lives, concerned with their junior um, trainees and whether or not they'll be able to get the spin-off papers they need to launch their career, which is very interesting because it's such a unique time to find a newfound um, feeling of empathy for those training under the them. Uh, so that's that's really what happened there when it comes to the data sharing. And now the NEJM goes after open access. This movement, which many payers, such as the Gates Foundation and others, um, where all the products of funded research will be made available free for many to read, has bothered the New England Journal of Medicine. And, and they are objecting to further efforts to move down this path. And they have published a very long, um, very... I believe, disingenuous article that kind of makes that case. Uh, but it's quite boring, and I won't bore you with that. I think the I will just point out the central hypocrisy here, which is that the New England Journal of Medicine publishes many, many original articles per year, uh, roughly 1,300 original articles a year some of which people wonder, uh, why are you publishing that? So for instance, if we have a novel drug, like the first-in-class BTK inhibitor, and that drug is in phase three testing and all these phase three trials keep coming out, and then the New England Journal of Medicine decides to publish a phase one trial of a Me Too drug that is tested in a very similar indication to what the original drug was tested in seven years ago, um, you might wonder, why are you wasting your precious page space with this Me Too drug? Then, of course, you might wonder less if you learned that the New England Journal of Medicine has annual revenues of about $100 million or so, and perhaps it's unknown, but perhaps the bulk of those revenues come from reprint sales. So in other words, after the New England Journal of Medicine has happened to conclude favorably that a certain company's product will be published favorably in their journal, that company may then happen to purchase several thousand copies of that trial reprint so it can be distributed in marketing events, I mean, educational events around the country. And then that sales may constitute significant revenue for the journal, and thus the journal may be inclined to publish non-meritorious articles simply on the hope, uh, or perhaps with the quid pro quo, of receiving sizable uh, reimbursement, Uh, maybe I have to add a big maybe here. Maybe that's what's going on. Who knows? It's all a black box. And if that were the case, though, you would imagine the New England Journal of Medicine would fight tooth and nail against shifting to a model where, of course, they made just a measly a three k per article, and that's certainly not gonna get you the same revenue. Well, I think it's a it's really kind of a self serving and dishonest criticism. Uh, and, and speaking of which, there was another article that appeared in the Chronicle Higher Education, which talked um, in. Victorian prose of the beauties of writing at length, the beauties of academic publishing, long articles written elegantly that span pages and pages and pages, and that is the way in which academics like to savor information and think about concepts, and that this new fangled invention, this Twitter, is an affront to the way in which academia works, short, snappy, often catchy ways of conveying information. It's not simply how academia was meant to happen. Academia is a chamomile tea. It's not Red Bull, my friend. And if you think otherwise, you need to leave the academy, which is how this gentleman concludes. Um, And Twitter's a bad thing. The irony, of course, is his article was doing a fine job of being ignored in the pages of a journal that few people read until it happened to be tweeted by the journal out of desperation to get more readers. And in fact, the journal did, of course, strike a nerve because when you tweet an article saying tweeting articles is foolish, you will inevitably get a response. And I, too, fell prey to their bait. I, too, bit the worm that was dangled right in front of me because it was too preposterous to let it go. Um... I guess what I really kind of just come back to is this idea that isn't it just a universal thing that in every moment in history that there is a new way in which people disseminate or communicate information that somebody who has succeeded or done well or gotten used to the old way is not going to like the new way. And such a person has a choice. They can try to overcome their apprehension. Give it a shot. Maybe you'll like it. Just as we saw when the internet first debuted, there were many people in their 90s who decided to jump on the internet for the first time. Um, Or the person could drag their feet, make a bold and brash public statement saying why this is all foolish. Um, But... The reason it baffles me is that such a person should surely know as a student of history um, that uh, the new technology will always j- just gain adherence. It'll just going to take over. And if you don't want to give it a try, you're just going to get left out. And if you want to complain about people using it um, while you don't participate, which is kind of an odd complaint, like the child who doesn't eat broccoli complaining that it tastes bad though they've never tasted it, um, if you want to stand on the sidelines and just criticize it, uh, you're going to be thought of poorly, you're not going to change anything, and you're actually going to kind of make put yourself in an impossible situation where you're just going to look like a hypocrite when you do uh, change your mind, which you eventually will if you want to participate in the dialogue. So I just think it's a very foolish thing to do. Um you won't see me doing it. That's what, that's what somebody was pointing out. Like, oh, see what happens when you get to that age. I'd say, well, you you won't see me doing that because I know there may be something. And, and you know what? I might actually um, have my own apprehensions about whatever new thing comes in the future. Um, Someone else tried to draw the analogy of uh, communicating about science and medical technologies. So they say, like, for instance, you're very critical of a novel screening test, but yet you're willing to so readily embrace a new technology. And I guess if this has not been clear from this podcast, I wish to make it explicitly clear. uh, The way in which we evaluate medical technologies and the way in which we evaluate other things in our lives, you do know they're different, right? By that I mean... I don't need a randomized trial to decide what television to buy. I don't need a randomized trial to decide what phone to buy or what car to buy. I need to weigh um, my ability to gauge the benefits and the costs of that product versus an alternative product and decide to use my money. The reason healthcare is different, of course, is because you can look at a wall of TVs and you can figure out which is the clearest picture. You can't look at a table full of knee replacements and know which is the best knee which has the best long-term outcomes. You can't look at them gene sequencing machine and know whether or not you live longer um, as a result of having your gene sequenced than not. The biology is much more complex than evaluating technologies. That's one. Two, um, the way in which we have decided on the payment structure, society has decided that when it comes to interventions that improve the health of people, that this is a different type of intervention than something you merely use for convenience. and for these kinds of interventions that all of us in society will pay so that people who are vulnerable uh, by, by chance, um, they have access to things that actually make them better off. But that contract appears to be violated if we all are paying for things that don't make that person better off. Uh, but instead just enrich some third party who's making a heavy profit margin and may even make that person worse off. Uh, That is a violation, I think, of the entire idea of why healthcare is kind of a different commodity. And so that's why when it comes to medical interventions, those are at least two reasons. One, it's not clear which is better for you, and that requires controlled study in in contrast with televisions. Uh, And two, we're all Paying for this in a way that says that we as a society believe that this is a value, and that action becomes violated if we start paying for things that don't improve health outcomes, thus punishing both society and the patient to the benefit of some third-party profiteer. Uh, So I think that's why it's fundamentally different. No one is going to force you to have an iPhone, but people may um, deceive you into receiving some medical intervention that doesn't make you better off and you may not be in a position to know that. So that's why healthcare, of course, is fundamentally different. Uh, And I'm surprised that needs to be said, but apparently it needs to be said. So on that positive note, we will turn to the interview with Catherine Schauble. I'm back here in Plenary Session HQ with Dr. Katherine Shabel. Dr. Shabel is an assistant professor of medicine here at OHSU. She's a practicing orthopedic surgeon. She's a specialist in joint replacement. Um, she has an illustrious medical history. She did her medical school at the Medical College of Wisconsin. She went on to the University of Utah, uh, where she did her residency in orthopedic surgery and a fellowship in reconstructive surgery. Um, she has been on the faculty of OHSU since she finished her fellowship. No.
1: No, you, I started practice in Bozeman, Montana, a private practice. Shut up! I was there I didn't for know that. just over a year. Yep.
0: In Bozeman, Montana. I know.
1: I left Bozeman, Montana. Not many people do that.
0: I, I don't know why people do that because that's a that's a place that people are calling a new paradise out west. You're what twenty minutes from ski slopes and uh, yeah, you have fifteen, maybe fifteen. Wow. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us on the Plenary Session podcast. Um, I should tell the listeners a little bit more about you. Um, you are um, thought of extremely highly across this university. Just this morning, I ran into Tom DeLore, and I told him I was interviewing you for the podcast, and he was singing your praises up until the moment you walked down the hall. Uh, and then just before we started taping, we were I was pulling up your um, your. Profile page here on OHSC website, and I noticed that you you currently enjoy a 4.9 out of five star ranking with uh, nearly 500 ratings, and and when we were looking through the ratings to, to you know because I was puzzled why it wasn't a pure five, um, it appears that some people may have miscoded you because the comment is glowing, but they've coded it as a one, and that might be why uh, it isn't perfect. Um,
1: No one's perfect. No one's (laughs)
0: perfect. And I guess listeners will know that, um, you know, uh, I think the people who go into orthopedic surgery are generally quite excellent. Um, You know, they tend to score through the roof in medical school. um, And um, uh, at least when they finish medical school, they're the smartest doctor out there. And uh, hopefully they, they keep that up.
1: no. Not, not at <laughs> all. It goes downhill from it goes there. downhill. Our I see. knowledge gets very subspecialized, and the useful, life-saving knowledge is unfortunately shoved into the back of the brain.
0: I see. It goes to that reptilian part. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me start by asking you this. What was it that made you decide to go into orthopedic surgery?
1: I got the idea about going to medical school at all after I um, kind of talked myself or, yeah, talked my way into going to Haiti in college really my college English professor freshman year went with a church group mostly medical people to Haiti for a couple of weeks over spring break and she came back and told us all about it and I'd learned French growing up so I spoke French pretty well and I thought hmm, well maybe I can weasel my way into this Haiti church trip. group mm-hmm. medical um, missionary group um, with her church so I started meeting people at her church and they're like who's this kid you know and I just kind of kept meeting people and being persistent, and finally they agreed that I could go on one of these medical missionary trips. And my what I was going to contribute was translation skills, mm-hmm, language mm-hmm. skills. And so I went, and it was very overwhelming and, and super interesting, and some you know a wonderful and difficult experience for an 18-year-old. Um, but it was great, and I learned a lot. I was able to translate, and one of the neatest moments of translation was in a Haitian OR with a Haitian surgeon and an American orthopedic surgeon and we were taking down a pseudarthrosis, which is an incompletely healed um, kind of fibrous union of a humerus fracture in a Haitian Mm -hmm. woman. Mm -hmm. And there was a dog running through the OR, there were bugs in the OR, we were picking screws out of a bucket and sterilizing them by dropping them in betadine and trying to you know assemble some- On the fly. Yeah, yeah, trying Mm -hmm. to assemble some sort of hardware to fix this woman's humerus fracture. And I knew right then and there that I wanted to be a surgeon. Really, The thought of going to medical school hadn't really even dawned much on me. Um, So right there, I was like, oh, I need to go to medical school and be a surgeon. And again, this was the first surgery I'd ever seen was in Haiti. And it was an orthopedic, actually orthopedic oncologist um, who was working with this Haitian surgeon. And and I was translating uh, and it was intense and it was awesome. And I decided that's what I wanted
0: to do. And and that's because, um, and even under these trying circumstances, that's because you felt like this is something that's really going to help this person.
1: Right. Well, I, I had this concept since I was pretty young. I think 13 years old is the first time I remember writing it down. That I wanted a job where I didn't have to think primarily about money, about making money for anyone, or just about dollars. I didn't want my job to really be about money. I wanted, and I wanted it to be um, a job where I, I worked with people and for people. Mm-hmm. I kind of always thought I was going to be a teacher. Mm. I anticipated being a teacher. So this was kind of the first moment when I had a different, an idea different than I'm probably going to end up a professor or a teacher.
0: I see. And uh, you went to college in Wisconsin as well?
1: I went to Marquette University yep, oh, in, Milwaukee, yeah, so in Milwaukee and then Milwaukee. stayed in Milwaukee for medical school. Mm-hmm. Oh,
0: great. Uh, I love that city, Milwaukee. Yeah, I do too. Um, so, so that was the moment you, you realized you wanted to be a surgeon. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like your major in college, was you weren't the pre-med <laughs> path. No,
1: history in French, actually. Wow.
0: And, uh, and then you you, pulled a, you changed from that moment.
1: I mean, I stayed with my major, but uh-huh. i I started adding all the premed med courses,
0: yep, requirements that year of calculus, yeah. That-
1: actually, I had done that year of calculus, my my freshman year because I just wanted to. Um, so I had the calculus out of the way, but then it, that enabled me to take physics with calc. The uh, next physics year. with calc. Right. I see. Yeah. I
0: see. And um, those are skills, obviously, that you use every day, all the time, all the time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> now, actually, helping my teenage daughter with her math, I'm trying to dust off the.
0: I see the Calculus. The calculus yes. I see. That's the real use. It's so that someday you'll know it when you need to tell mm-hmm. it to someone else. Yep. So that was when you decided you wanted to be a surgeon. I see. Um, and then you went to medical school with that goal in mind. And when did you decide that it was going to be orthopedics as opposed to general surgery or some other surgical? I substitute? always had an
1: affinity as a, you know, I think a lot of sporty people or just active people. Um, suffer an injury and you are aided by a surgeon mm-hmm. or a, a, some sort of a sports medicine physician and you recover and you resume, you, you really were injured, you couldn't participate anymore and you get back to doing it and you have like, wow, that was amazing. I probably couldn't have really done that without the help of this you know, medical professional. And um, so I'd had those experiences, and but I knew I was biased and I was... Um, interested in all sorts of things. So I really went into medicine with a totally open mind, thinking I may totally change my mm. mind and end up a pediatric infectious disease doc. Like, I I like surgery. I think I want to be a surgeon, but I really but you still committed kept the open mind. to tabula mm-hmm. rasa. Like, every rotation, I really met it where it was at. But in the back of my head, I thought I probably want to go into orthopedics and that's pretty competitive. So I should prepare myself in terms of early research projects and I all that nonsense. So, um, so I had all of that going on while I was really considering other options the whole time. I really liked OB. I really liked infectious disease. I really liked cardiology. I mean, I, I liked a lot of different things, but just kind of kept coming back to wanting to be a surgeon and wanting to fix, fix things.
0: And I guess I would say that I think, you know, the way you're kind of talking about it is probably true for many people going into surgery, that, you know, they have that affinity, they, they kind of feel like that's the right place for them, but um, they kind of go into rotations with the attitude of, well, maybe I'll like this too. Mm-hmm. And and actually, you know, the the irony about it is when you go into something with the attitude of, this might be something I like you probably just do a really better job in that rotation than if you go into the attitude of, I know I don't want to do this.
1: Absolutely. Right. And, yeah. yeah.
0: And then I guess, and, but you were also doing orthopedic surgery research during this time. Mm-hmm. It's funny because I have a friend, David, uh, who ended up becoming a neurosurgeon. And uh, we, he had this uh, very funny story that when he was, uh, uh, he kind of decided, I think, in the middle of his third year, um, and he goes to meet with one of the senior neurosurgeons who says... Um, You know, it's good that you've decided, but uh, it's really a bit late. Uh, You should have come to me a few years before, a year or two, maybe three years before. Uh, and then we could have set you up because this is a very competitive field. And, of course, then we we took that joke and we kind of, I mean, we took—we thought that was humorous because, you know, how, when is somebody supposed to know, you know, unless they have the exposure? <laughs> right, exactly. And so then we we kind of took it to the logical extreme, which is like, oh, you should have brought, you should have come to me when you were kindergarten or pre-K. <laughs> totally. That's when you really have to show the aptitude for neurosurgery if you want to get in this field. Gotta start working on that CV <laughs> as
1: early as possible.
0: But you all, but you recognize that there was some, some ortho research you needed to do. Um, and you did it uh, even before you'd done your orthopedic rotation as a third year.
1: yes, yep. I, I had a sense. and I had, um you know, met people I met these doctors who I went to Haiti with. Well, many of them were active at the Medical college of Wisconsin. Mm. and they they did give me advice about if you want to go into something that's particularly competitive. Um, you do need to do some research and so you know I had I had good um, intelligent associate and professors of medicine who were kind of talking me through um, strategy which was great because I didn't have any medical people in my family or Close friends or anything, so that at least I had some somebody to give me some strategy, which was extremely helpful.
0: Important. And now, how um, you know, if, to give listeners some idea of what your practice is like, I know um, you focus primarily on joints, mm-hmm. and uh, and is it just and, and joint revision even? Yep. So hip and knee replacement
1: and revision, and then complex surgeries um, are part one kind of subspecialty in orthopedics, and it's got a very. Poorly descriptive title of adult reconstruction surgery, which doesn't, you know, doesn't describe what we do at all. But hip and knee replacements, then revisions, which is when we redo hip and knee replacements because they either were done incorrectly um, or they've worn out or they're infected. Mm. So they're the most common reasons we redo joint replacements. And then there's also another component which we've been busy with lately which is periprosthetic fractures. So certainly elderly people fall and el- elderly people with joint replacements fall. Mm-hmm. People get in car accidents. People who have joint replacements <coughs> get in car accidents. Mm-hmm. So we have these patients who have fractures around a joint replacement which um, are, it's a one of the more complicated <coughs> things that we do is putting these people back together, fixing the fracture and the joint replacement. And so usually in a way that they can get up and walk that day.
0: Really? Immediate
1: ability to weight bear. So there's a mechanical component. And um, prior to to the the
0: surgery, they may not be able to weight bear?
1: Well, if you have a femur fracture and a hip replacement, right, you can't move. You Uh know, And then our job or our goal is to reconstruct them in a way that the fracture will heal, but we've fixed it in a way that can withstand weight bearing mechanical loads immediately what Um, about
0: pelvic fractures or acetabular fracture when you have a replacement same
1: thing Mm -hmm. Um, same thing you want to reconstruct the joint in a way that there's enough strength in your mechanical construct to allow immediate weight bearing especially for elderly people because elderly people can't successfully partially or non-weight bear and be mobile Mm, Um, so they either don't move or they move and put weight on the joint so you have to it's all or nothing it's all or nothing with Mm. older folks
0: I see so, let me ask you then, um of of all the things you do now, what is the most satisfying part for you um or or is it sort of a general thing? You know, what is it that you you really enjoy about this job? I know you enjoy it because I've heard you talk about it so much.
1: Yeah. Um, I think keeping people able to move, I think movement and and ambulation is such a core function of being a person and mm-hmm. if you can't do it your life is so drastically affected so taking somebody who has pain when they walk or can't walk and making it so that they can and doing it with a pretty quick turnover um, it's satisfying to see patients go through that so it's a nice thing to do to help people do that and that's that's enjoyable these are successful surgeries of surgeries hip and knee replacements are some have some of the highest success rates um, compared to complication rates, of, in particular hip replacement, of any things we do in medicine. So it's fun to be a part of that. You know, that's exciting to pick something successful to do. It kind of feels like cheating sometimes. Um, and then the complicated things that being at the university, we certainly get get the complicated patients, the patients who have avascular necrosis of their hip, their femoral head, and acetabulum in the setting of graft versus host disease mm. um, after they are now mm. trying after they've survived yeah. leukemia and now they're trying to survive the cure and now you've got this sick patient on lots of medications immunosuppressed high risk for infection who you have to figure out how to reconstruct their you know very massive um, problem and though, so we do complex. I call that complex primary arthroplasty, and we do that a lot too. And that's really you're know, taking basic principles and applying them to a complicated situation. I think is it's just always a un- unique. Every case is unique and fun challenge. And
0: um, well, that's interesting. Those
1: are obviously very you know um, important people to help and. Mm-hmm
0: and uh, and i guess you alluded to this but um, high success rate how do you define the success rates in these um in knee arthroplasty So certainly arthropl- yeah. you
1: can look at post operative function scores pain scores we look at patient satisfaction scores mm-hmm. Before I mean, there's and measure a whole host comparison. right we mm-hmm. have you know there's some very simple even seven question um, patient-reported outcome measures that we follow. So pretty simple to follow because they're short, logistically always hard to collect. Um, <laughs> but uh, but that we can track over time how much we change people's um, overall life function, satisfaction,
0: and pain. Uh, so I guess what you, you would say is that the majority of the people you operate on, they come back to you and they say something like, thanks so much for that operation. It's helped me a great deal. Yes. Yeah, yep. uh, I see. And so that's really, yeah, one of the things that... Um, That I I can totally understand and relate to you, like why that is. um, It's very gratifying to be a physician in that situation. Um, You know, those of us who take care of cancer, of course, we have a range of kind of clinical encounters. But one of the things that, you know, we consistently, I think, do a great job at is things like diffuse large B cell lymphoma and Hodgkin's lymphoma, where we have cure rates of, say, in the setting of large cell. 65, 70% cure rates, and in Hodgkin's, you know, 90% cure rates, uh, depending on, you know, early favorable, that sort of thing. Um, It's very gratifying because you had somebody who had a problem often felt very bad because they had B symptoms or something like that. You're able to give them a treatment, and then just a few short months later, they come back and say, I feel as good as new. I feel great. Um, And so it's very gratifying as a doctor to, to hear that.
1: It is, but there's a high onus there too. If you know, if 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 a, if a cancer has a high cure rate, and you don't cure the patient, in my case, if a you know hip replacement has a very high success rate. And I have a patient who's dissatisfied with it. um, you know, that that feels also like a, a huge you know, huge failure and disappointment. so there's there's a flip side to the coin always as well.
0: yes. and I think uh, it's a it's it's more than a punch to the gut absolutely um, and and you're right. It has to do with the fact that it, it the other thing is you know in the back of your mind that it's it's not 100%. right? Um, and so this is going to happen. It's going to happen to you no matter how good a job you do. Yep. Um, but when it does happen, it's still just a blow every time. Uh, yep.
1: Medicine and surgery is a humbling sport.
0: Hmm. Let me ask you about some of the consults that you get. Um, at times you may get a person who comes to you with um, persistent pain or disability after having undergone a total knee or hip arthroplasty. Um, sometimes you comb through the original medical records and you think to yourself well the other doctor did you know everything spot on they did as good a job as you could expect and this is unfortunately just a just a necessary um, occurrence infrequent but something that happens um, and i'll work from there sometimes you look at the, the the workup before and you may have doubts about whether or not the procedure was indicated whether or not things were done well you're nodding your head um, can you talk us through these kinds of situations? Sure, absolutely, so
1: again, being at the university and being a fellowship-trained surgeon, we, we evaluate <coughs> my, my partners, Tom Huff, Rylan Kagan, myself, we evaluate patients who are dissatisfied with their joint replacements. Mm-hmm. Um, we do that fairly regularly, it's a big part of our practice. And sometimes we really find things that are wrong, um, uh, alignment issues, uh, instability issues. There's all a whole host of um, things that certainly can go wrong um, in surgeries, and so we identify those. But sometimes, you know, looking at the the radiographs in front of me, this knee replacement looks like it was well done. The examination is very normal. The patient has an adequate range of motion, normal strength. Um, uh, it looks like it was a surgery well done. No signs of infection. Mm-hmm. And so you think, well, why is this person why is this person dissatisfied? Yeah. And for example, we know that. 15 to 20 percent of knee replacement patients have some degree of dissatisfaction with their knee replacement, hmm. way higher than hip replacements. Hmm. Um, and we are constantly trying to figure out who who are those people. Um, so one thing I do to help myself figure out who should have knee replacements and who ends up dissatisfied is when I see these patients who are dissatisfied with what seems to be an overall well-done surgery, as I look back at their x-rays and I and I I scrutinized their clinical course prior to the surgery, and um, what I think a lot of us have found, there's some literature is that um, often these patients who are dissatisfied with their knee replacement did not have advanced um, knee arthritis or other form of joint degeneration when they had the surgery. So it was almost like um, too soon or an aggressive surgical treatment, and those pa- patients tend to be dissatisfied with their outcome.
0: So what you're saying is that this is a person who, I mean, they must have complained that it hurt there. So they're pointing right. at their knee saying, it hurts here. But when you review the radiographic image, you you come to the conclusion that there's just, um, the joint isn't that damaged. There's right. a lot of cartilage there. It looks like it should be working fine. Um, and if those people undergo a replacement for a joint that isn't really worn out, Um, they tend not to be satisfied, but um, one might look at it in the point of view of um, the thing, I mean, what these kind of situations point out is that the thing that's causing them the discomfort might not be the anatomical joint.
1: Absolutely. Or um, they just had knee arthroscopy and they haven't recovered yet.
0: I see. Or, uh
1: right, there's some other issue that we need to identify and sort out. And then certainly there are patients who have some knee pain and you have to tell them, you know, your knee is not perfect, but... This, your mild arthritis and degenerative meniscus tears aren't something that is well treated with a joint replacement. That's not the right treatment for your problem. The right treatment for your problem you know, is bracing, maybe anti-inflammatories, physical therapy, weight loss. And and we can't get you perfect, but a joint replacement won't work for this. And there's a lot of theories about why. I have a lot of ideas about why, why joint replacements don't work if you replace a knee that only has mild degeneration. Yeah. Um, And one of them is that I think the bone changes with arthritis and the bone becomes sclerotic. And I think that enables that sclerotic subchondral bone to be a platform for the arthroplasty. And Uh, if you don't uh, let that aspect of osteoarthritis develop, um... Then you don't, and there's certainly you can shoot a lot of holes in that idea. It's just one of the ways that I explain this. And I talk to patients too. I say, if you have a small nail that you need to hammer into a soft piece of bone, you wouldn't use a sledgehammer. <laughs> and my arthroplasty is the sledgehammer, and the small nail is your mild arthritis. And we have to m- match the magnitude of the problem with the magnitude of the solution. And since joint replacement is a pretty drastic thing to do to a joint, we have to only do it for drastic problems. And, and patients who are pre-arthroplasty usually understand that, and even ones who I show them their X-rays, I show them their overall, yeah. you know, normal joint spaces on weight-bearing radiographs before surgery, and I say, you know, usually we dissuade patients with these knees from having arthroplasty, and this is why they can certainly understand.
0: Yeah, I see what you're doing here because I mean, I think what you're trying to do is you're trying to, um, and I applaud you for this. You're trying to think of how can I can how can I explain this kind of tricky concept to someone. Using a metaphor, using language that really connects to the person. This is probably why patients like you so much, uh, as I notice from the from the website. Um, and I guess uh, I I think part of the reason why you 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 have to do this is that some of us, and I might even be guilty of this myself, but particularly people who are lay to orthopedics, um, they they might think of the body the way we think of our car. And in our car, if anything is doing anything that's suboptimal, we believe that if you just replace that part, it's always going to be better than using the original car part. So my my axle squeaks a little bit, and I go to the mechanic, and they say, "Well, you know, you could keep riding on it, but I could just replace the whole thing." And we tend to think that like replacement means like like just this new clean slate, like brand new. Um, And and what you're kind of pointing to is this: these data suggest that the body is not the, the analogy of the car and the body; it doesn't hold up. Um, you know, if your knee is a little bit bad, it may not be improved upon by replacing the joint altogether. Right, um, and so and and the, then the question is, well, why is that the case? I guess one possibility is, as you point out, which is that. It might take further deterioration of the joint um, in order to make it feasible, practical, and beneficial to undergo the replacement. Absolutely, yep. Another possibility might be um, that the people in whom there is discomfort from that joint, in the absence of um, a massive joint damage, they may be having discomfort there, but it might be for some other reasons, some sort of musculoskeletal reason, some sort of absolutely, some sort of compensatory reason, exactly. or maybe even some sort of psychological on top, you know, superimposed on top of whatever they're dealing with. Um, I think it's a very interesting thing. Um, so these are some of the cases you get. So I guess I would kind of want to, want to probe a little bit more about, um, do you feel as if, particularly in a field where there is such a high fee-for-service reimbursement, that orthopedics at times can be prone to excess, to doing maybe more than what's indicated uh, in some people? Uh, Are some practices maybe more guilty of that than others? Um, Are there things that happen at university that take some of that pressure off? Um,
1: Yeah, those are great questions. Certainly, I think that um, there are pressures that make really probably all all physicians in fee-for-service you know payment modes do things maybe that are more fence sitting or questionable. and orthopedics is certainly that. I think we knee arthroscopy and increasingly knee replacement are two areas um, that are uh, that have undergone or are undergoing scrutiny to that very effect. Um, we certainly know now more than ever that knee arthroscopy is not a super benign procedure. It doesn't not have risks. It has significant risks and sequelae. We know now that patients who have had recent knee arthroscopy, have suboptimal outcomes if they have, a you know, a, a soon thereafter knee replacement. So we are learning more and more about how these smaller, less invasive surgeries really aren't free kicks for patients mm. and that you should not have six knee arthroscopies, for example, before your knee replacement. That cleaning up cartilage, you know, in quotes, um, that is starting to degenerate with an arthroscopy does not overall have... Um, improved outcomes versus a uh, conservative management of progressing arthritis. I see. Um, And we know these things, yet they still happen a lot, again, because um, patients like to think that there's a surgery that can fix them and surgeons make money doing said surgeries. And um, so there is there are certainly are logical forces that drive to um, surgeries that are probably unnecessary when we truly look at what we know about indications and outcomes. And, again, knee replacement is something that's being scrutinized now too. Um, how... How can we objectify our indications for surgery in ways that right now we haven't had to do? We've mm-hmm. been able to take whoever we want to do a knee replacement onto surgery and maybe there does need to be some additional scrutiny or a radiologist's um, confirmation of degree of degeneration on a radiograph or mm-hmm. something something like that and that's all that's all being floated because we do know that patients who have surgery before it's um, indicated don't don't have as good of outcomes and that surgery is always
0: risky. Mm-hmm. Do insurers ever push back and say something like, uh, you know, this person's not meeting some criteria for this replacement?
1: Yes, they do. Not too much in the arthroplasty world, but
0: in orthopedics in general, yeah, um, certainly. What do you think of these studies that, you know, they're not, there's not one for everything, but there's certainly been a few where um, some orthopedic procedure, and typically these are the less invasive procedures like uh, arthroscopy, meniscectomy, or are, uh, or sub subacromial decompression are tested against sort of a sham intervention where a control arm is made to believe that they had it done, but they didn't actually do the critical step. Um, you're nodding your head. You're, yeah, yeah, There's several of those studies yeah. in orthopedics, and and they they've they've not they've been kind of negative. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not sure if I even can think of one that's been positive. Um, how how are those greeted in the field, uh, and how how do you think about these? I mean, obviously, it's it's a higher level of evidence.
1: You know, I think they're harder and harder to perform now. So I think a lot of these are kind of historical studies because sham operation studies are difficult to enroll patients in. For example, uh-huh. um, how does the, your question is how does the field of orthopedics via? react to it? Yeah. Oh, so, I think very powerfully. that yeah. You take that information, um, um, and we we know for for example, again, back to knee arthroscopy. And yeah. I'm not anymore a knee arthroscopist, but I was in the beginning of my practice. And you know, we if we show up to our oral boards with a bunch of arthroscopies of early degenerative knees I and mean, we're going to be invited to come back and take the test again like that's a fail like we know from sham studies that making small incisions in people's knee and not doing an arthroscopy versus doing an arthroscopy when there's any sign of degeneration really that the sham surgeries did just as well yeah. as the patients who had arthroscopy or better so um, we know we know that this has been demonstrated um, in. So there's things we know, and I think most orthopedic surgeons really honor that and let patients who have degenerative conditions know that this won't be their benefit. Now you have adamant patients, you have patients, well, last time I had knee arthroscopy, it yes. really helped. Yes. My neighbor, my wife. Yes. You know, um, or really, this is pretty mild degeneration, and you know, maybe it's the meniscus symptoms, and you can kind of find some gray areas where you can kind of wander into, and yes. for a given patient, maybe this is the right decision. Um, but in general, I think for most surgeons. Um, And for most orthopedists, those sham study outcomes are are very much so prominent and um, uh, valuable.
0: That's great to hear. I guess um, I was recently in uh, Finland talking to someone who was working on some of these studies, and I guess this person will feel reassured to know that these, these are really quite impactful. Now, let me ask you, you alluded to this, the oral boards. This is something that not a lot of fields have, but mm-hmm. I understand that neurosurgery has it, orthopedics has it. Um, it basically means that several years after you go into practice, what, like three years or four? Uh, it used to be three, now it's two. Two. And you have to, do. you collect a set of cases or they collect a set of cases of patients you've taken care of, um, and you go to some... Committee tribunal, mm-hmm. and you are on trial, and they kind of look through your records. It's really,
1: absolutely terrifying. Really? Yeah, um, of all the tests I've had, to take that was the one that that was the most terrifying for sure. So, right, they it's varied from year to year, and it will continue to vary over time. Uh, but currently, the way they have it is after you've been in practice for about six months, you start a six-month board collection period where every surgery you do, you log and you log all of the complications, you log all sorts of patient. Parameters, they're now asking for patient reported outcome measures on certain cases. Wow. And you log it in, uh, into this website, and then at the end of the period, um, some months pass and they give you they pick 10 approximately again some years it's been 14 some years it's been 12 sometimes you get to kick one out sometimes you have to present all 10 and this is your work these are your patients
0: oh and they have a they can pick any of the ones you take oh they can pick
1: anybody you operated on from that six months and so inevitably you know you have a a death and a hip fracture patient shortly after surgery you have an infection Mm. on a hip replacement which should be one percent ish rate, so you got to defend that. You'll have a, um, kind of a strange operation that isn't done very much, so your indications are going to be strongly scrutinized. Um, you'll have an indication that you do on somebody who's outside of the atypical age range for that procedure, yeah. and that will get picked because it's flagged. Again, they're flagging things; they want yeah. you to talk about some of your complications, some of your routine, not controversial work, and then the the things that are, seem a little bit out of bounds. And and
0: those are the things they ask you about. And then what do they do? They bring you there, sit you down in a hot seat, and there's like mm-hmm. lots of people standing around. No, and, it's just oh. a
1: small, you know, when I did it. So we all meet in Chicago. Mm-hmm. It's always in Chicago. And you it's this it's just these little cubicles and my year I stayed put and the examiners moved and it was 320 minute exams and each time there were three people talking to me. Two pouring through the the paperwork that I submitted, yeah. one talking to me and asking me questions and looking at um, the x-rays and the imaging. Um so You know, 20 minutes, and then they move on, and then you do 20 minutes with another group, and then they move on, and then 20 minutes again for a third time. So after about an hour and a half, it's over, Mm. and you don't really get much feedback, and there Uh isn't um, a lot of uh, affirming or negating things you're saying. They're just listening with a very kind of blank slate,
0: Uh just like this podcast, just like this podcast. Very little emotion. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So you really leave Uh not knowing if they think that you're a fraud or if they think that you're you're doing good work. You have no idea. And then you just get a, a
0: letter saying, you passed, you failed?
1: Yeah, and they told me that I'd get a letter. So I was just looking looking at every mailbox that I could <laughs> possibly associate yeah. with my name. And, you know, oh, you just use a big place. And yeah. I'm waiting for it and waiting for it. And finally, I'm like, well, maybe I should just log in and see if there's anything in the website that says they've sent it yet. And yeah. I just logged in and boom, there was my...
0: You said you passed. Yeah. Wow, that's a good feeling. And you only had to do it once in your career.
1: No. What? Um, well, you only have to do it once. In orthopedics, mm-hmm. we recertify every 10 years. You yeah. can choose to do an oral exam for your recertification or you can choose to do a, 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 just a written exam for your recertification. Oh, I see. And now, actually, as of this last year, we have a couple of other pathways where you can do ongoing um, yeah, maintenance reading, or maintenance, yeah. um, there's, an, there's an alternative pathway to ongoing certification. So what we are, have all sorts of options now. What are you gonna choose? Well, since I'm at the ten year mark, I'm going to. Oh, you are. Yep. Mm-hmm. So I'm taking the I'm taking the exam, the high stakes exam. The high stakes exam. Yep. I see. And then I'll be f- I'll be good for another ten years, and um, I'm not sure if I'll take one of the alternative pathways next time or not. I haven't gotten uh, get through I the, see. get over this hurdle first.
0: Oh, you'll do. F- I mean, people <laughs> in people in orthopedics, you you you're you're bred to take exams. Come on. Yes. Orthopedics. True. Everyone is a, a stellar exam taker. It's actually quite interesting to me about these. Um, these oral boards. I, I I wonder why, you know, it's just simply not done in medicine fields. I wonder why it's not done. I mean, I think it's quite interesting. Um, I don't know if anyone will argue with this point, which is that, when it comes to medicine, multiple choice tests don't really capture what we do day to day. Right, right. I mean, I can't think of any, I mean, it's not even just that the questions are often tangential or irrelevant, but that medicine is not a multiple choice business. It's way more complicated than that. And so when I keep reading that some robot's going to be replacing us, I laugh because I can, it would be one hell of a robot if it's going to try to do everything that we're doing. Um, But the oral boards, it seems to me, um, you know, I'm not sure about the exact format, but that seems to me like a better way to kind of try to assess what someone is doing. You get, um, you're collecting a nice denominator. They know every case you did in six months, so it's, you can't really hide things. Right. They are choosing which ones they want to talk about, as you point out. Some of their choosing is the things that may not be, uh, may not have turned out as we would have all hoped they turned out, which happens in medicine. Um, some things may be more sort of bread and butter, um, and 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 ask you to explain your thought process. I think. That's really pretty good. I have to commend them for doing that. I mean, Yeah,
1: and they're looking at your documentation. They're looking at the timing of things. I, they also want to flap you. They f- I think they want to flap everybody so they have tactics. Um, so they probably pick a bad cop. And the, the way they flapped me was they asked me, asked me when do, you, when do you dictate your operative reports? And thankfully, I led with the word typically Okay. Um, right after the surgery when I'm in the recovery room waiting for x-ray to come which is true typically for my elective cases. That's how I did it. Well, I had an irrigation and debridement of an early post-op infection, which is you a know, devastating complication for anybody, but definitely a young surgeon in board collections. It was horrifying. And um, after that procedure, because I didn't change any of the components, I wasn't um, waiting around for the X-ray. I might not even have obtained an X-ray. Um, and it was you know late at night, um, an urgent thing. So it was just an atypical thing. So it was not my typical. So I didn't dictate the op report right after the surgery which is really ideal cuz that's when you can remember everything you did. Of course. Now, in irrigation and debridement, you know, there's not a lot of technical nuances to yeah. it that you need to capture in report. I opened it up or... and washed it out. I <laughs> yeah. opened it up and washed it out, right, yeah. essentially. But but I didn't do the the report immediately after the surgery which is best best practice. So they asked me that and they could see that I had dictated it days later, you know, and so they asked me you know, well, what, how accurate do you think this op report is if oh, if I you see. didn't dictate it I see. right after the procedure? So that's why
0: you were wise to use typically because- I, I was
1: glad that I, I used a, I gave myself a- A little out. An out there, because they caught me on it. And they said, well, look at this one. We see the date as, you know, four days after the actual operation.
0: When I was a student, I never rotated on the orthopedic surgery service, but um, I did see them from time to time in the distance in the OR. And often, when they were going into the joints, I saw them wearing something that resembled more of what Neil Armstrong wore on the moon. Is that is that accurate that you wear the spacesuit? We do wear
1: the spacesuit,
0: and this is to ward off infection.
1: I think it's two. There's a twofold uh-huh. approach. I think there there is some evidence that it decreases joint contamination intraoperatively, and there's also evidence to refute that that it does that it's at all important from a joint contamination. Um, joint replacement surgeries are particularly concerning for infection or um, any sort of contamination of the field. It's mm-hmm. a big incision, and we're putting in a lot of metal. Yeah. Metal is an environment Nitis. that is a nidus for infection, mm-hmm. and bacteria can live on the metal. They can grow a biofilm and really just be, you know, become very um, comfortable, create a little ecosystem for themselves, and white blood cells from our body can't get there because mm-hmm. there's no blood supply to the metallic implant. So we have to be very careful not to contaminate the joint. We take extra measures that other surgeons don't take. We have positive pressure operating rooms. We don't let people enter from the main hallway. We only let people enter from the core of the OR, in and out of our rooms. We minimize the number of times the doors open. Um, these are all evidence-based things. We, we put this um, antibiotic-impregnated tape over patient's entire exposed skin after it's prepped to minimize any a potential for bacteria that may still be on the skin to get into the wound. We take many, many measures to prevent contamination during surgery. And mm-hmm. one of them is we wear these spacesuits. So it's a helmet that has a cord that's attached to battery and the actual helmet just blows a little bit of air um, kind of past your face so that you have fresh air in this suit. And then you have a hood that goes over the suit that has a, a Plastic, you know, screen that mm-hmm. you can see through, and the, your head is actually sterile, so I can touch this the whole thing with my hands. Normally, in oh, surgery, right, you can't right, touch right, your right, head. Right, right. Um, and then, um, I think that the main reason why they're used, really, the second main reason, is that they prevent us from getting splattered in blood. Because when you're impacting components, um, there's definitely some splatter. And it would be all over our our faces and our foreheads and um, things like that if we weren't wearing these spaces. What does suits, impacting
0: component mean?
1: Impacting a component when you're using a mallet and you're you're hitting the component um, and connecting it to the patient. Sometimes with glue, sometimes just with um, screws. Care, no, uh, um, a lot of, like hip replacements, for example. We pretty much have removed cement. We use it sometimes on on elderly patients with osteoporotic bone and in, in some other circumstances. But usually we don't use cement anymore. We just machine the bone and place a very tight-fitting titanium implant into the bone. So we're actually impacting the components into a tight space. So literally
0: the titanium is hugging a bone, like a rim of bone, or?
1: Right, so all mechanical properties have uh, have an elastis uh, elastic modulus. Uh-huh, um, elasticity. Uh-huh. And so we basically I I make that. up, like if you imagine an, a hip socket, an acetabulum. Yeah. It's a hemispherical space. And yeah. we, ream, we ream out just a little bit of bone, and then we impact a titanium shell that's about a millimeter... Bigger. Bigger. Uh-huh. And it so pushes ti- outward. Right. Yeah. So the titanium has a little spring to it and grabs on. Once we Im- impact it, if we do it correctly, it's actually quite hard to remove, even right then and there. But then the body, the bone, grows onto the implant. So it's an, a biological fixation that occurs over time in the first um, several weeks and months after the procedure.
0: Wow. Mm-hmm.
1: So impacting, we're using quite a bit of force, and then certainly blood splatters in those instances. And um, so we're protected, and the patient's protected if we I have these the spacesuit on. The spacesuit
0: on. And you, and uh, are you, am I correct to think that you don't wear the traditional laundered gl- um, gowns? You wear. Um, uh, no, you only wear disposable.
1: It's pretty much all, all the disposable. I think all surgeons are wearing disposable gowns now through, through Residency I wore we wore laundered ones.
0: When you when you're putting in a knee or a hip, uh, you have a lot of options out there. Of course, you have the cobalt metal on metal hip, which... Uh, we don't do it anymore. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> um, but but there are many, many, many different brands. Is that right? There's Many like, brands. How do you know which one's best for the patient? How do you know which one's best for you? How do you know?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question, and there aren't easy answers to it. Uh, many of us have training bias, so we were trained to use one, and I certainly have that. I, thankfully, I was trained to use various Various non controversial ones that all have good track records. So uh-huh. these implant companies um, do studies, and then um, non industry tainted, non implant funded studies are also done to corroborate outcome evidence. There's a lot of Studies out there about these implants, and since most of them are very, 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 very similar, the outcomes look very, 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 very similar from implant to implant, barring major design uh, differentiators. Um, so, there's a lot of options of things that are very equivalent. Mm-hmm. And then the next step is which one do I know how to use best? Yeah. So, the implants are all very similar, but the instrumentation and the way you prepare the bone for the implant is all a little bit different. And so, you may like the way Company X. Um, makes instrumentation for the hip replacement more than company Y. And so you're going to stick with company X. What instruments are they making? The mallet? So or the, the mallet, the, the jigs, the things that, the brooches, the brooch handles. What's a, what's a jig in a brooch? Handle? So a jig is... I need to is, come to your OR. I need to learn. You definitely do. Come watch us. Um, yeah. the, so for a knee replacement, for example, we remove just a few millimeters of the ends of the femur, but we do it in a way so that the end of the femur looks like a trapezoid from then, that, and that, is, that matches the shape of the component. So you have these jigs that tell you where to make your cut. And you secure the jig to the bone with pins, and then you you make your bony cuts um, to oversimplify it. And um, some of the jigs um, fit with pins that are spring-loaded, and some fit with nails that you have to hammer in. And there's just small nuances, and you may just really prefer to do it this way over that way.
0: I see. Now, one of the things that we read a lot about is um, the presence of uh, device representatives in the OR. Yeah. And uh, is that the case? Are they common? Are they helpful? Do they ever get in the way? Uh, you know, what, what, is, what is the role of them? I mean, sometimes yeah. they're the only ones that know what screw goes in what spot, right? They're good
1: fall guys if they're okay. frustrated. <laughs> um, no, they are typically in the OR in a lot of orthopedic surgery cases where we're buying implants. So they do perform an important role. Not all hospitals allow them in the ORs, but most do for something like a joint replacement procedure. So the, first of all, they provide their inventory. They bring the implants. There's
0: And you don't buy it until you take it out of the box? The oh.
1: hospital is buy the implant until we are we've you know assessed the bone prepared the bone trialed with trial implants and when we're sure we like everything that's when we tell the rep okay find these implants give them to the nurse and the nurse opens them onto the sterile field
0: that's why they're always wheeling those boxes around the,
1: all those boxes because there's a lot of different things that can happen in a surgery and different sizes of implants and we have sizes every couple of millimeters really? so so they have to have a huge inventory, um, really? we we can know we can be pretty close to know what we're going to need before surgery with templating, but we're never you know we're not exact all the time. So we need them to have their inventory. So they bring that, they manage that, and they they are prepared. They know what cases we have, and they bring what they think we're going to need. And there, um, and then there's a huge variability in quality of of reps I would say in mm-hmm. my experience and I think most surgeons would agree with me and so you find a, a company whose implants have good track record, whose instrumentation you like, who provide good representation uh-huh. and then they are very helpful. If I have a surgical technician who's never done this procedure before, while I'm operating they'll be talking the surgical tech through the next steps and they have laser pointers and they'll help show yeah. okay, well, you put this here, you do this next, she's going to ask for this next and they they are very helpful. They also help, the end of the case you can imagine we have all these metal instruments kind of in a big pot because we've used them in various orders, and yeah. and and they need to be put back into our trays to be resterilized. sterilized yeah. and they will do that. They'll they'll sit and pick through it all and put the instruments back in the trays they belong in to send to sterile processing. Which, if we had to use one of our OR staff to do that, it would add you know really a half an hour of time to every case. surgery case. So they provide service to the. To the hospital, that is in some ways very tangible. Mm. And how do they train
0: for this job? What's their background?
1: A lot of them have been surgical technicians. I, I think see. that's pretty common trajectory. I see. Um, sometimes not, though, and then they they get training usually on the
0: job. That's very interesting. I um, I've I've definitely seen them when I was a student in different rotations, and they come and, and they've and they assist and often to, uh, quite a quite a uh, a bit. Um, but I, I didn't know all this, and then recently I've been reading some articles about how they have, often have different incentive structures, and sometimes their salaries can be quite quite high. And then when oh, I saw yeah. when I saw that, I thought about uh, career switch. When I saw some of those, Did sal- you? No. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 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 thought about some of those. Sal-
1: they work really hard. I'd say the ones who are oh, yeah. very successful in making a lot of money. Um, I think they're they're working probably harder than most of the surgeons they work with in really? terms of number of hours. Yeah. they take call. They come in. If I have to do a tricky. Revision of something in the middle of the night or a trauma case in the middle of the night, um, the, the reps will come. They'll you page be them? there. Really? Yeah, we call them and they come in if we want to use, you know, and they're competitive. So, say we have an open tibia fracture yeah? and a kid who was skateboarding and fell in the middle of the night. And so we have to do this surgery and they'll, they come. There's a bunch of different implants we can use for a, a tibial nail, but a lot of different tibial nails. So, if I pick company X's yeah. tibial nail, yeah. And you better believe that rep's going to come because he wants me to, or she wants me to use that tibial nail again and again and again. And if they don't come and make sure things go smoothly, and then you go to the next one. Then we, then I would be less likely to, you know, have had yeah. a good experience with that nail if I struggle or if I can't, you know, get the right length screw because this didn't work, whatever. You know, I'm going to be frustrated by that, and I'm not going to want to do that again. So next time, I'm going to pick a different company. So yeah, they come, they come, and they're often very, you know, very helpful. What's a tibial nail? A tibial nail is a, usually titanium. Um, Nail or rod, so long piece of metal, and they're often really like beautiful colors. Different companies make them different colors, yeah. which is kind of fun. Uh, maybe one color for right, one color for left. They they do sometimes, and it's mostly straight, but there's a couple bends on it. And um, it's a nail we use for um, simpler patterned tibia fractures.
0: I see, and uh, and um, it's a titanium nail, um, but the actual cost to the hospital might be like thousands of dollars. Thousands of dollars. Thousands of dollars. Thousands of dollars. One hell of a nail. Um, that's one thing that I always noticed when I was, a you know, I spent some time on the neurosurgery service and they had different device. They had reps for even the screws we would use for yeah. the, the plate that would hold uh, the, the the cranial. Um, uh, uh, craniotomy uh, bone. Craniotomy mm-hmm. bone, yeah. Oh, boy, it's been a while since I've been there. Yeah, I forget the, the words. Yeah, and, and, and the screws were like titanium coated, um, you know, different colors, had a different driver, a different like head on oh, the yeah, screw. it's
1: all proprietary. It's yeah.
0: all proprietary. And, um,
1: and expensive, even the screws. Super
0: expensive. Somebody was like, they dropped one is like two hundred dollars." That was rolling under the table. Mm-hmm. I was like, "Oh my!" It's not mm-hmm. the kind of screw. You, it looks a lot like the screw you see at Home Depot, but uh, I think
1: really it's very very similar. Although the titanium, um, you know, we usually don't use you know titanium screws when we're at home, um, you know, building well, a table. But um, you but should see my table. Uh, no, it's no, <laughs> super awesome, <laughs> like, super lightweight. Yeah, and, lightweight. Um, but titanium yeah. metal does have a very very different properties than say stainless steel. So we use it in medicine a lot it actually has a modulus of elasticity that's very similar to cortical human cortical bone uh-huh. um, and that makes it a, a really useful uh, material to use and so but they are very these things are very expensive
0: now what about some of these metals that are like uh, that people often have ATP to like uh, nickel and things like that so what do you do about oh, those? that's yeah. a
1: great question we are we are really scratching our heads about that in my field um, some of the implants we use are cobalt chrome alloys in arthroplasty and cobalt-chrome allies typically have some nickel in it, and it's not a lot. But as as you know, people who are allergic to nickel, just trace amounts can really cause reactions. So there's a lot of smart people trying to figure out, is a skin-type reaction to nickel um, yeah. comparable to what's going to happen when we have a device inside a patient? Yeah. And the tissue that the device is exposed to is now bone and synovium, maybe ligament and tendon. Are those tissues going to react in the same kind of allergic uh, hypersensitivity reaction type reaction that skin does and is this really a thing this is maybe this guy with painful knee replacement who looks like it was done pretty well he had arthritis before surgery is maybe the reason his knee replacement yeah. is inflammation because he's allergic to the implant yeah and really what the smart people think um is probably not i see have you um, but ever? I don't think we know. For have
0: sure. you ever like seen a clear cut case of that where you open it up? It's like clearly rampant inflammation around the. No, I you
1: know, haven't. And I have done revisions for people yeah. because they suspect that they're allergic to their implants, and I, um, in my you know n of a few, they didn't get significantly better. I see. And
0: what do you do when the when the when the when the joint is infected? You just have to take the whole thing out.
1: Usually we do. That's the only way we can cure the joint of infection that we know of right now is to actually take all of that metal out.
0: And then you leave someone without a joint for a while? while it... Sometimes
1: yeah. we prefer to do what's called a two-stage exchange for an infection. That's, that's really what we still think of heretofore. 2019 is our what we would call our gold standard for the treatment of a prosthetic joint infection is to do a two-stage exchange. Stage one, remove the joint replacement that's in there. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, a great... Um, morbidity to the patient, these ingrown femoral components can require osteotomies. The femur can end up in pieces to get this infected metal out. Really? Sometimes it's and not. And it can take hours dramatic. of work. It takes hours of work, lots of blood loss, very morbid procedure and sometimes. Are You're you using
0: a drill or drills? Drills,
1: osteotomes, um, saws, yes, I all sorts it, okay. of things. Blood splattering, you see why we got that really, space, the hood, suit space suit on? Yeah, yeah, the hood is critical. My goodness. Um, and then we, we implant something, and sometimes we don't implant anything, but we usually implant something, and we call it an antibiotic spacer. That's the general oh, umbrella uh-huh. term. So there's cement with antibiotics mixed in
0: mm-hmm.
1: that then is used to create or to hold an implant while the infection is being treated. And our goal with this antibiotic spacer is to create bactericidal concentrations of antibiotics Mm -hmm. locally in this infected
0: joint. So it's like an aminoglycoside often or something like that? Yeah. yeah. So we
1: usually use tobramycin, gentamicin, vancomycin, and sometimes other antibiotics if we know what bacteria it is and the sensitivities. We usually don't at the time of surgery. Um, And then at some point down the road when inflammatory markers have normalized, the incision is healed, the infectious disease team is happy. At some point down the road, Three, six months later, we can reconstruct them to a more typical metal permanent type of prosthesis. Oh,
0: I see. So, what's the, the spacer is plastic or something in this case? Or There's all sorts uh, of
1: different mm-hmm. ways of doing this. Um, um, plastic, um, mostly made out of cement with like a metal metal rebar in the middle just to mm. give it some integrity. Sometimes we just use more or less normal components and we just um, you put more cement in than usual. Right, I see. There's all sorts of ways to, to do to it and you kind of have to, yeah, you have to tailor it to. The amount of bone and tissue present, the uh, severity of the infection,
0: all, all of these things. But all of these must be weight bearing because you can't leave a person not weight bearing. No,
1: sometimes they're not. Sometimes we're not able to give a person a, a functional weight bearing spacer, but we try to whenever possible.
0: So, but some people they they have to be in a bed on, for like two months?
1: Well, you know, oh even, no. I mean, we make it so that they can at least get up and use their other limb. I see. Okay. Um, but it's catastrophic. Having a prosthetic joint infection and undergoing that yeah. kind of treatment protocol is catastrophic. You also have, you know, a line in place and you're getting IV antibiotics, which yeah. certainly have their own host of yeah. complications and inconveniences. Um, and it really, um, it's just a it's a hard thing and we need to minimize the, that event in such, every way possible.
0: It's such a fascinating... Uh, you know, everything you're telling me I find so fascinating because uh, it just goes to show you that, you know, uh, uh, those of us outside of orthopedics have so little exposure to this stuff. You know, everything you're telling me is something that I think is very interesting, but I no one ever taught me. And I, I didn't have the – you know, of course, when we do surgery, we have to pick, like – Of all the surgical subspecialties, what is your preference list? And, you know, every student gets, what, two or three or something like that. I think I got three. Um, And, you know, if you don't get something and you You don't see it, you don't see it. Yeah.
1: I went to med school fairly naively, thinking it was like a career decision, you know, and then realizing all the different options you have outside of medicine, you know, within medicine and surgery that, that you're really, if you're a, Nuclear medicine specialist or a radiation oncologist, like you don't think about the things I think about, right. like ever, ever, you know, and and likewise vice versa. So, yeah.
0: Let me ask you this: um, one of the things about orthopedic surgery is um, it unfortunately suffers from a gender imbalance. It is uh, uh, I think when I last checked, it was something like twenty uh, percent or less women in the field. Uh, um, you know it's it's one of the most sort of skewed uh, ratios. Um, what is it what is that environment like, and why why is it not improving at the rate it ought to be improving?
1: Really good questions. I think they loom large for a lot of us. Um, so I, the last statistics I saw. Sixteen uh, percent of practicing or th- of trainees are women. Yeah, 16% sixteen percent trainees. That's an exaggeration. Practicing, practicing orthopedic surgeons. Are, it's less than ten percent are women. It's terrible. Um, and then what I do, joint replacement surgery. It's around two percent. Really? I, and I actually just got um, some data from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. So it's my arthroplasty. Society that I belong to, and um, mm-hmm. their data of the people who are fellows of the AAHKS mm-hmm. was it was let lower than one percent.
0: Oh, so women. it's not going to get better in the in, at least in the near term in ortho in arthroplasty. No, um, well,
1: I think it, it will. You know, um, it will get better. I guess 180 residents applied for the arthroplasty fellowship mm-hmm. match this year and of the 185 were women so the numbers are low but they'll go up okay and of the five two were my residents my female residents really yeah so i had you know 40 percent 40 percent of the women, women feel you know applicants were, yeah, yeah, under you.
0: yeah so what but what what is the what i mean i guess it's hard to know and you may not and we may not just be speculating but what do you think are the what why, why is this the case
1: I think there's a lot of assumptions. Yeah, I, this is a great question. At some point in time, um, women who want to go into medicine don't consider they they're dissuaded or they yeah. they they didn't ever allow themselves the thought that this would be a subspecialty that they could go into. Mm-hmm. I think some of it is historical. I think some of it is um, cultural. I think people make you know make assumptions about themselves and about fields that mm-hmm. are unfortunately detrimental to their own opportunities. So, um, or the community of orthopedics and women in orthopedics, we certainly were working hard to try to Mm -hmm. um, get to kids earlier, even in the high school setting, of letting letting girls in particular know that this is a career option, um, and that there aren't really physical barriers. There are only, I think, theoretical barriers to to women being in orthopedics. So, uh, there's a lot of movement. There's a lot of enthusiasm. Certainly being a you know being faculty and working with medical students and precepting medical students and lecturing to the medical school classes and just being a practicing female orthopedic surgeon who is accessible i think is one of i think the simple but important strategies that i have
0: yeah i mean be, i mean it's proven by the fact that um, you you provide a role model and as you said two out of the people going into it are people who trained under you yeah. in part because you know you kind of showed them what it could be
1: absolutely and told them that just like I can do this, you can do this, let's do it, yeah.
0: Yeah, And, um, but do you also feel that there is discrimination in the field? And it, does it exert itself? Or have you sort of felt like people treated you very fairly in your training?
1: I think overall I, I was really lucky and um, was treated very fairly. I think just really – from the time i was a child i had a very supportive gender neutral mm-hmm. parents and community and had a lot of opportunities and and very you know there there definitely were moments where i felt some gender discrimination in my education but it was pretty pretty minimal and i think it, it, a lot of it is an attitude thing you know i think knowing that it was a male dominated field can either dissuade you or intimidate you or it can kind of kind of seem like a challenge you get to rise to and yeah. i think i saw it i saw it in that latter sense
0: and I think, um, I mean, I do think that this is uh, a, something that's a very important issue. And um, I think uh, th- there's certainly some fields, neurosurgery, cardiology, orthopedic surgery, that's still extremely skewed. And, right. you know, there needs to be some sort of concerted effort to improve upon that. Um, Ooh, I guess, can I tell you about yeah. our match results this okay, year? Okay, yeah, let's hear um, about Yeah, So
1: we we've always... I think, like most places, we want to encourage not only um, gender diversity in orthopedics, but just general uh, diversity of underrepresented populations in our fields. And I think our department here at OHSU is very, has been, I participate in in the residence selection, and I would give everybody, our program director, chairman, just a lot of kudos for really sincerely embracing the diversity issues. And when we have qualified candidates who are underrepresented populations, we really do, um, you know try hard to encourage them to come here and match here. And um, our this last year, um, we just, it was match day last week, as you know, yeah. we matched. We have five residents last year and we had four women and one man, so great. it's really, I was just laughing my head off, it was so fun, because <laughs> every year we rank women highly and other members of the underrepresented um, populations highly in hopes that they'll end up choosing to come here. And then, you know, we do fine in the match, but it's often, you know, Five white men, five oh, white men, which mm-hmm. is great. They're wonderful. No, nothing, nothing against them. But it was just really fun to see that this year we just we we got four out of the five women. So that'll be a it'll be fun to to usher them through. And our current senior class, our current chief class, is three out of five are women. And I think wow. they they're being strong and well trained and um, positive representatives of our our residency. What about a big among the faculty? There are four female orthopedic surgery faculty, one research faculty, that's a woman, and one um, podiatrist. So I say five, actually, five surgeons. Um, and so we are, we, have, we are overrepresented in our department, um, which again, good. I give the department leadership a lot of kudos.
0: Let me ask you about, um, there, there will be some people listening to this, and I, I can think of one in particular, but you know, some medical students out there who are thinking about going into orthopedic surgery now you uh you know, you play a role in, in thinking about who you're selecting for residency. Um, I'm wondering, um if I could ask you about that. I guess I wanna know, um the candidates you're getting, they're all stellar?
1: Oh, for the most part it's ridiculous. We get over usually around seven hundred US applications and we interview about fifty. Um in order th- get
0: seven hundred you interview fifty. Yeah. And you rank uh about 50, fifty, probably, probably maybe fifty maybe.
1: minus a couple end up not being ranked. But
0: and you, uh, you may not want to share this information. But you, you probably rank to match. You you're not getting up to forty. You know, you're ranking your last person. It's match- different every year, oh, but right.
1: But yeah, it's no. We're we're usually not. You know, matching our last couple people.
0: What is the average uh, step 1 score in in orthopedics? I all? don't
1: have that. You can find that information, uh-huh. but it's, you know,
0: it's high. It's high. And and it, do you utilize uh, cutoffs for like who you'll interview? You must, um, I mean, it's a So oh, you'd you'd don't. Some, I
1: think so we the way we do it in our department is is we have several <laughs> interested people. So we have a kind of a handful, a subset of the faculty who are interested in reading these applications. And then with seven hundred, <laughs> we got a zoom. So you get a set from our um, wonderful residency coordinator, and you gotta get them back to her in 24, 48 hours so she really? can send you some more. So mm. you have you know have day to read these ten applications, and I really personally commit to really reading them and thinking about them because really? this is a big yeah. decision. I don't use specific cutoffs, okay, um, it's more good. of a conglomerate. Uh, sense of of their attributes and i think most of my colleagues feel the same way there isn't there isn't a number there isn't a number of honors and rotations there isn't a, a quartile of your class there's You don't just have more to be AOA. Sense. You don't have to be AOA. Um
0: do you have to do an away rotation here?
1: So the away rotations thing um no you absolutely in fact none of the people we matched this year rotated here which is interesting. interesting i don't know that that happens very often um it's my first Um, and nine times doing this or eight times doing this um, but in orthopedics, because it's competitive, there has been this evolution mm-hmm. of a drive to do away rotations, yes. visiting rotations um, at a big, the, I think. A job, f- effect, interviews. Yeah. job interviews. Their uh, job interviews. And that has a big effect on your senior year of medical school, the M- Medical College of Wisconsin. When I was there, they had a pretty rigorous fourth year schedule. We yeah. didn't just go, I'll go hike in the Himalayas <laughs> for three months at the end of the year. Like yeah. we had a lot of rotations and they didn't give you, they didn't let you waive any of the mandated rotations yeah, to go yeah. and do an orthopedics so, away rotation. So do
0: ways it, it, it kicks your butt
1: Kicks your butt.
0: Yeah, I'll and tell I, you a little funny story. My friend did in a way, um, of course, going into a very uh, tough subspecialty. And um, one, of, one of the things they did at my friend's away rotation, they told him, um, "We will provide you with housing. You don't have to worry about that at this way surgical rotation." Wow. He was like, "Oh, that's a great perk. Thank you for providing me housing." And then he told me that it was like two doors down from the last patient room. And he said he was on call Q two, so it was like forty eight hours on, off one night, forty eight hours on. I asked like, "Oh, what'd you do in the city while you were there?" He's like. I I saw the sun two times in a month. I was like, wow. oh my God. Yeah. I mean, Oof. it kicks your butt. These away rotations because it's a job interview and you really want to do a good job. You do. And I think I really,
1: my sense, and I'm sure there's data on this too, is that for every time that it's a benefit to you that you impress everyone and and set yourself up to potentially match there, you can also, yeah. you know, just rub someone the wrong way, have an off-encounter, um, it's a risk it's a a huge risk too so I personally did one away rotation and felt like that was plenty and I knew a few days in that this just wasn't the community for me it wasn't the part of the country I wanted to live in you know and still tried to work hard but I'm sure they could sense that I didn't have the enthusiasm that others did and um I I think it's gotten overblown and overemphasized certainly I think it's nice to go see how things are done elsewhere at least yeah. get one more data point helps you ask questions at your residency interviews um but but to some are some some students are doing 3 in addition to a month at their own home institution are doing 3 away rotations yeah, and that's that, yeah. I think that's excessive it's hard on families it's it's hard on students um I'm not sure that it's of great benefit to to do that sort of thing but that's just my Yeah my most opinion. people I
0: know who did ortho Neurosurge did two to three aways, yeah. yeah, and and also they weren't easy to get. And I remember one person um, telling me um, that you know they called up UCSF and UCSF said something like, "Oh, you missed the deadline by like one day," and so they were like, yeah, they too could,
1: bad, too right? bad, yeah." And not all of our our blocks um, correlate correctly, so it's not like there's some standardization of okay, let's all do our rotations on this schedule, so that residents can, so that students can get from one to another and not have this like week or two downtime or this week overlap that knocks you out of contention. Um, so there's just a lot of scheduling. And the, and right, just to get in a way rotation now, you're writing essays. Some, sometimes you have to get a letter of recommendation to do a visiting rotation. I mean, it's just getting so competitive. And
0: wow. And, and I guess one of the questions I have for you is related to this competitiveness, but what made you when you finished your training decide that well, actually, you were in Bozeman, Montana for a year, and it then was. you decided to come back for academics. Yeah. So what, what, what went into that decision?
1: Um, you know, I think at the end of training, people tend to be tired. I was definitely tired. I always had a sense that I would end up in academics, and some of my favorite um, attending surgeons in training were surgeons who started off in private practice and then after a variable amount of time ended up coming to academics. So I was okay making that decision. I think I was tired, and um, we, my husband and I uh, – you know, caught wind of this job, Bozeman being on one of our short lists of, of places uh-huh. to live. Um, my husband could telecommute, a um, commute, so we we decided to go for it, and it was just we had a lot of enthusiasm for just being in a beautiful place with mountains uh-huh. and um, we had two little kids and so there's kind of the fatigue of finishing this long hard slog and having little kids and it just seemed to be the decision that made the most sense and it was really a beautiful place to live a wonderful hospital I had a really nice private practice just for the for the family career you know two career couple it just wasn't the right place for us professionally um altogether. my husband got a job offer here at OHSU and so we we decided before i bought into the practice and before i got too you know settled. entrenched yeah that, that we would come here i
0: see um, but it, there wasn't anything about the practice you didn't like
1: no, I mean I loved. It. I mean there was private practices in orthopedics often have a buy-in to the practice which is which looms large and this buy-in was certainly very daunting.
0: It's a few hundred k or something. Yeah, several
1: yeah. hundred k. Um so it was going to be another house mortgage and that that was daunting for sure. But but otherwise no, it was a really nice hospital and a um And
0: you have to work 3 years before buy in or something like that or There was some usually some limit or
1: Yeah, I mean different practices do it differently. Mine was you had to commit to buying in kind of before the end of your second year, I think it was
0: I guess one thing I don't know is like what is it like you know your call schedules? Are you always on call for your patients or do you
1: pretty much in a small town private practice, in a private right? Practice, yeah. Yep.
0: And but and OHSU are you always on call or do you rotate with people?
1: We rotate. We share call and we um, have a that's one of the benefits I think about being in academics is we have a big group and we share call. That said, um, just the other weekend I came in and did a periprosthetic fracture That's on a what weekend I, was I wasn't on call.
0: Yeah, because um, it was your patient.
1: It wasn't my patient. Wow. Oh. But it was a surgery that the day the patient was ready to have the surgery was a Saturday. It was a holiday weekend. So Monday, we weren't going to have access to additional OR time. That we had an OR, the patient was ready for surgery. And we know from outcomes data that letting femur and hip fracture patients lay around for day after day after day, their mortality risk goes up um, pretty significantly. So we had this optimal window, but the surgeon who was on call you know, again, this is the one of the most tricky hip surgeries that hip surgeons do and he was an upper extremity surgeon who's a very skilled upper extremity surgeon and if I had a really super tricky hard shoulder thing come in I would have been on the phone with him. Right. So so I was the one of our group of, you know, six or eight surgeons here who could do this surgery. I was just one that was available and stepped up to do it. So we all do that, but that's rare. Usually if I'm not on call I'm not I'm not here or doing cases. But it, it definitely it definitely happens and if certainly if One of our patients has a problem and needs us. We usually are the ones to take care of it, unless we can't, and then we have partners to do that.
0: I say, so in this case, you did it because you did the right thing, which is the professionalism that we hope the next generation walks out with. Right. Um, But but there may be other times where it's your patient. You operate on a Friday and something happens over the weekend, and you're tempted to come in and do it yourself rather than let a colleague do it.
1: Sure, absolutely. But sometimes it's um, it's simple or. you know, like if one of my arthroplasty surgery colleagues is on call and is happy to take care of it, you know, sometimes you'll you'll let them take care of it. If you're out of town, you let your partners
0: take care of it. Mm. Um, now, my, my last question for you, because I know I'm taking up too much of your time, but it's so interesting to me, um, and I'll, then I'll let you go. You never want to keep a surgeon too long because uh, <laughs> they got to go places. Um, my last question for you is, um, you know, how do you um, – you work a lot with residents. How do you negotiate – Giving them autonomy, mm-hmm. letting them do their thing, but also knowing that you could do some things a whole lot better, and you just go take the take it away from them and let me do it myself. Um, but but you also want to let them do it, and 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 how do you how do you navigate that teaching kind of aspect?
1: I think arthroplasty is a great field for teaching um, in a very controlled way because these are very similar procedures that we do very repetitively. So when, whenever there's that situation, certainly as a surgeon you get really good at navigating this one procedure over and over and over again. But then at some point, like, I mean, that's it. You're doing the same thing over and over and over again. So what's fun about teaching is now it's like, yes, I can do this. Now I want you to do this. So we have a very stepwise approach to surgical education, and there's lots of studies done on it that show that it doesn't overall create any negative outcome for patients and we monitor that very carefully i think there was an era where you know residents were just left to figure it out (laughs) while attending sat and like smoked on the deck or i don't know but it's not like that anymore so um the the residents who work with me this is elective surgery patients have lots of choice for who could do their arthroplasties so the i work with residents who've been you know orthopedic surgery trainees for three and five years by the time they come and work with me. Mm -hmm. So they're not brand new at this. They've jumped through lots of hurdles and they Mm -hmm. have done a lot of surgery. Then they they are given a list of expectations for the rotation and a list of how I do my primary surgeries. Really detailed, like step by step by step by step by step. And it's like 40 steps for a knee replacement that are written on this this document. And they need to memorize it. So I operate first and they watch. and I talk them through things and I answer questions. and I tell them, let you know I say, what's the next step? what's the next step? what's the next you step quiz as soon I quiz them. As soon as I can tell that they've memorized this list, then the next case is theirs. And there's a, a various ways that I do it, but usually, um, it's always pending patients you know the patient factors always trump everything out about education. But you know if it's a straightforward case in a healthy patient, there's no patient factors that really come to play. The resident gets to start and they get to go until they don't know the next step Mm -hmm. or they get to go with knees there's a certain amount of tourniquet time and with hips there's a certain amount of ebl Uh and when Uh they hit that threshold if they get there Uh then they're done and i take over or if they don't know the next step
0: yeah
1: i take over so the benefit to them of learning the steps is that if they can can keep moving and they know the steps they can do the whole procedure but i'm right there with them i mean we're in close quarters Mm -hmm. like you don't get personal space in the or where you're really standing shoulder to shoulder and I'm watching exactly what they're doing and I don't let them deviate a millimeter from what I would do and they've watched me do it over and over and it's really you know I I can talk them through and um, it's it's cool it's basically I'm using their hands and my brain to do the operation and then eventually I shut up and I watch and let them use their hands and their brain to do the operation once their hands know how to do it and um, again I you know stop them real quick if they're going to do anything that I wouldn't do and we talk about it and and we move forward so it's very controlled um, and they're very motivated mm-hmm. to learn these basic orthopedic procedures, and um, and it's very cool. You know, monitor outcomes, monitor x-rays, monitor alignment, monitor angles. I'm constantly monitoring everything, and there was absolutely a teaching-learning curve for me. At first, I oh just I would rack my brain. I'd be like, God, oh, that's never happened before. I've never seen that before. I'm like, what the heck am I doing? And I just had to get better at teaching and better at being in control of the situation.
0: Oh, I see. But, oh, uh, interesting. And then by the end of it all, they can do it all by themselves.
1: Absolutely. By the time my residency Even usually at the end of their 30-year rotation, they're they're pretty comfortable getting through hip and knee replacements um, in patients who don't have, you know, extreme bizarre deformities or extreme obesity and things like that.
0: Wow, it's so interesting. Okay, it's very different than what we do, but... um uh, because of course, now we we in, the, in this my business, we just make decisions, and you can always argue with someone, and we argue, uh, and uh, and and the good residents and the good fellows, of course, they see things my way, uh, there you go. And, and the, there the you go. and the but the bad ones have many many other people with who uh, many other references to cite. Let me put it that way, um, but. Um, I think I've kept you long enough, uh, uh, Dr. Catherine Schauble, I want to thank you for taking time out of your day to talk to us about this. Thank you for your interest and for your
1: awesome podcast
0: planning oh, session.
1: It's fantastic.
0: Thank you so much. Um, and uh, you know, uh, I'm very tempted to come in and shadow you. Is that okay if you I? Bet, come you there?
1: bet. Just let me know. Yeah, um, I, you're always welcome. We have uh, we have an, a physical therapy student shadowing programs. So sometimes we have PT students. Um, I always have med students hanging around. You're very welcome. We'll get you in scrubs and, I'll get, I'll, and I'll suit splatter up. you with blood. Oh <laughs> <laughs> and, uh,
0: and let's let's hope that I I, uh, I can I can I can handle it. But uh, yeah, it's not it's a rare to have the attending oncologist shadowing program. Uh, but uh, we could pioneer something new. Sweet. Uh, well, but thank you so much. I feel like uh, it's a very interesting discussion, and um, and uh, we'd love to have you back sometime to talk about some orthopedic papers when they come out.
1: Sounds good. Thanks okay. for having me.
0: You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be better? What topics could we cover? Um, How can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.